Mark chapter 6. We're back in the book of Mark. We're going to pick it up where we left off. Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 44. And this morning we have before us a very familiar story. The feeding of the 5,000. And uh, most of us who have been to church for any time, or even some of us who have just heard about things concerning Christianity, have heard about this miracle, have heard that Jesus took a few fish and a couple loaves, and that with it he fed 5,000 men, plus the women and children. But don't tune out because you've heard the story. May it never be that you would say, oh, I know everything about this, because you don't. And so let's come before the Lord in prayer and be asking him, what do you want to teach me today? from this event that happened some 2,000 years ago? How does it apply to my life right now? In my school, in my work, in my family, in my church, and in my heart, how does it apply? So let's read this very familiar story, starting in verse 30. It says, And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and they ran together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw the great multitude, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. And they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Father, this morning, we ask that you would speak to us profoundly. That even as our hearts are already stirred through worship and, and through the announcements and through film and our kids going out on mission trips, even as our hearts are already stirred with regards to your kingdom and the advancement of it, We ask that now by the teaching of the word, you would make us diligent and trustworthy stewards. That you would transform our priorities, that we would begin to make a shift from the focus of self to the focus of you. From being all about us to being all about others. From asking how we could build our kingdoms to wondering how we could build your kingdom. Let there be in this congregation and on this coastline now a massive shift in focus from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. Speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is now at the peak of his popularity. 
One of the things about the Gospel of Mark is it is brief. It is rather succinct. You get a lot more details in Matthew and in Luke and even in John. But just in the first six chapters of Mark, we've already covered two years of Jesus' ministry. And we're now at the peak of his popularity, at the height of the multitude seeking after him, and there's but one year left before the cross. Now at this point in his ministry, with one year left, there comes a change in focus for our Lord. There comes a shift in methodology. He's no longer going to be going from city to city, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He is now going to be primarily investing himself in the 12 disciples. He is now going to be first and foremost preparing them to do the work of the ministry. Preparing them to carry on his work in the establishment of the church. So now he begins to focus on the training of the twelve. And that was reflected a couple weeks ago in verse 7 when it says he summoned the 12 to himself and he sent them out on this little missionary trip. Two by two, he sent the 12 out. Now he didn't send them out because at that time they were more effective than he was at the ministry. He sent them out that they might be equipped, that they might have their eyes open to the needs that were in the world and the power that they had as the representatives of Jesus Christ to begin to meet those needs by the grace of God. And so we have before us the training of the twelve. And I will submit to you this morning that the whole purpose of the feeding of the 5,000 was not to fill the stomachs of the multitude, but it was to train the spirit of the disciples that they might be equipped for a greater and soon coming work. You've got to realize that when God works, He always works on both ends. When God calls you to do something, He's going to bless the person through you whom you're ministering to, but you will get even more blessed. Isn't that true? Those who disciple people, we know that. You'll say, okay, man, I'm going to commit some time to this person. I'm going to pour into them. I'm going to disciple them. And they go away saying, thank you. I'm so blessed. And when they walk away, you're like, not even, dude. I'm way more blessed than you. It's always the occasion. I experience the same thing when I teach the Word. I go away way more blessed than you guys. That's just God's design. When our kids go to Costa Rica next month, the Costa Ricans will be blessed. There'll be little Costa Rican boys and girls that get saved and brought into the kingdom of God and born again. But our kids will come back transformed. They'll come back blessed even more so, they'll tell you. That's the way God works. He blesses on both ends. And so in your life, because it is God's desire to bless you, He will orchestrate circumstances in your world that you might have the opportunity to bless others. Did you hear that? Because it is your Father's desire to bless you, He will orchestrate circumstances in your lives so that you have the opportunity to bless others. And so what we see in this passage is we're going to look at it today is an outline for allowing God to develop in us a servant's heart. The title of this message is Developing a Servant's Heart. And we're going to look at these points. Here's what we're going to learn this morning. Number one, realize that you report to God. And then we'll talk about number two, that we need to get alone with God. Number three, that we must begin to see things God's way. Now those first three you're going to have to do. But after you do those three, God is going to do the rest. Point number four, God will begin to expose you to the needs. Point number five, God will reveal your inadequacy. 
And point number six, God will enable your hands. And the conclusion that we'll see in our text today is that the servants of God are blessed more abundantly than the multitude of men. The servants of God are always blessed more abundantly than the multitude of men. Point number one, realize you report to God. We see that reflected in verse 30 of Mark 6. It says, And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to Him all that they had done and taught. Remember, they were set out on the little, on the little mission trip, on their little ministry trip, and when they came back, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. It's important that we realize that we do not belong to ourselves. That we were created by God and we were purchased by God and therefore we have a commitment or rather a a responsibility to God. It says this in 2 Corinthians, rather 1 Corinthians 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, it's in the context of sexual immorality. But the principle applies to the whole of our life. That we do not belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in all that you do. Romans 12.1 says it this way. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. It is reasonable and it makes sense that we ought to reciprocate by the redemption given to us through Christ Jesus and give ourselves wholly to God. We report to God. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this in the context of Christian liberty, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's such a good one for daily life, for all that you do, for your decisions. Can I glorify God in this decision and what I'm committing to? What about Colossians 3.17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him in the, in, to God the Father. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That word there, stewards or servants, has the idea in Greek of an under-rower. An under-rower. Here's what an under-rower was. It was a subordinate that waited to accomplish the commands of his superior. Listen to me now. Give me your attention. The Bible declares that we ought to have men consider us in this way. As subordinates who wait to carry out the commands of the superior. As the humble servant who wakes up in the morning and says, Okay, God, what do you want me to do today? I'm yours today. I am yours for your will, for your doing, for your glory. I am awaiting your command. It seems logical, doesn't it? It seems the only right response for the Christian, but if we're honest, we would realize that most days we wake up and say, what do I want to do today? What you'll find is when you begin to ask God, God, what do you want to do today? That he gives you the desires of your heart and you find yourself doing exactly what you would do if you could do anything. That's how good God is. 
Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, humble us tremendously. Jesus speaking says this, Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down. Which of you, when your slave comes in from working, says to your slave, Oh, slave, come and sit down. Let me serve you. No, but he will not say to him, but he will not say to him, prepare something for me to eat. Will he not, excuse me, say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward then you may eat and drink. Jesus goes on to say, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, say, We are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. That humbles me tremendously. Because so many times I do something for God, I'm looking for the pat on the back. For man or for God. Oh God, look what I've done for you. Oh God, today I could have gone surfing. I could have done this and that and the other. Oh, but I did this for you. And the Lord taught us in Luke 17, don't say that. Just say, I'm an unworthy slave. I only did that which I ought to do. The word slave here in this uh, passage is the word doulos. It means one who is in a, state, in a state of permanent servitude to their master and whose will is wholly consumed by the others. The biblical concept of the Christian serving the Lord is that our will would be wholly consumed by the will of God. You see, at the end of eternity, at the end of this life, we will only answer to one person, Christ Jesus. We will only answer to Him. The only thing that will matter is what we did with the gifts that He entrusted to us. And so because that will be the case at the end of time, ought that not be the case at the end of every day? Shouldn't we say at the end of every day, Lord, I did everything you wanted me to do today. Nothing more and nothing less. That's the goal of my life. Every day that is my express goal that I might report to Jesus Christ at the end of the day and say, Lord, I did all you wanted me to do. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, how often did I fulfill that? Oh, I don't know. You don't be the judge. Let God be the judge. Sometimes I pull it off. Sometimes I don't. But the goal of my life is, Lord, today I'm reporting to you. I want to be used for your glory. I want to be used for your will. So we report to God. Very important that we realize that as we talk about developing a servant's heart. You are responsible to God. Point number two is is reflected in verses 31 and 32. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Life was so busy for the disciples and for Jesus. There were so many needs. There was so much going on that the Lord said to them, hey guys, come on, we've got to get alone. And so they went away to a lonely place to be in the Lord. Now, how many of you have a busy life? Raise your hand. (laughs) 99.9% of everybody in here raised their hand. Even people that aren't busy claim to be busy. (laughs) I know people. I do college ministry. I know kids who, they're not busy, man. Mama and Papa are paying the way and they're taking a couple classes and they're hanging. And you say, hey, bro, how you doing? Oh, dude, so busy. 
so much to do. I got six units. I can't even work. Oh. It's some weird thing that even when people aren't busy, they say they're busy. It's something about the generation in which we live. Isn't it true that when you ask somebody how they're doing, they don't tell you how they're doing. They just say, oh, oh, just been so busy. Oh, just doing so much stuff. Really, what are you doing? Oh, everything. What am I not doing? Oh, just busy. That's the standard answer. And so because life is so busy, apparently, the prescription of God is that we get alone with Him. That is the prescription of God. Not that we take some drug, not that we go on a vacation, this and that and the other, though those things are important. Not taking drugs. Going... (laughs) Oy vey. Going on vacation is important occasionally. But getting alone with God... Saints, if we don't schedule time for God, then I ask you, when is it going to happen? If we don't schedule time for God, when is it going to happen? We schedule time for everything, don't we? I've got this stupid phone. It's a phone, and it's also a Palm Pilot. Someone gave it to me. I think it was a hint. And so in it, I've got all my schedule, and, and everything I put in there is connected with my address book and my phone numbers and my computer and everything else, and it holds me horribly accountable. And so I've got this Palm Pilot with everything that I should do. But you know what's not in my Palm Pilot? Spend time with God. Why don't we ever write that down? Now, don't get me wrong. I make time for God. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I wake up and I spend time with the Lord. But if we don't schedule it, if it is not, listen now, here's a key phrase. If spending time with the Lord is not a spiritual non-negotiable, then the enemy will see that we negotiate it right out of our lives. If you have not made it a spiritual non-negotiable, then the enemy and the world and the flesh will see that it is negotiated right out of our lives. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist in Psalm 73 looked upon all the wickedness of the world, that the wicked were prospering and all the stuff going on, and he began to lose perspective until he came into the house of the Lord, drew near to the Lord, and then he said, the Lord is my strength. I have made God my refuge. Whom have I in heaven but Him? Idolatry is a weird thing. Idolatry in this generation, in this nation, doesn't present itself as a carved statue. For a very small percent of it, it's a a carved statue. But for most of us, it is some other activity in which we find satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with satisfaction except for the fact that you can't get none. You can't get no satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that the Rolling Stones had two songs, Sympathy for the Devil and I Can't Get No Satisfaction. (laughs) It's not by mistake. The two go hand in hand. You can't get any satisfaction apart from the Lord. But idolatry is when we start looking for rest and peace and joy and satisfaction in something other than the Lord. 
and it never happens, that's why it's an idol. You know why an idol is an idol? People run after it. Why do people run after it? Because they've got to chase it because it never satisfies. They're always going after it. The Lord doesn't say, chase me. He came to us, amen? He's not an idol. But idols have got to be chased after because they never satisfy. And unless we go away with the Lord, unless we get in the boat and go to the other side, unless we come away with him, there's always going to be a restlessness. And we'll try to fill it with buying stuff. We'll try to fill it with television. We'll try to fill it with a couple beers at the end of the day. We'll try to fill it with this and that and the other, with eating and so on and so forth and surfing and fun. And we try to fill it with all these things and it leaves us empty. And there's a restlessness that plays into the flesh and the enemy. And God comes along and says, shh, be still. Know that I am God. My peace I have given to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, but my peace I have given to you. Because life is so hectic, it's very important that spending time alone with the Lord is a spiritual non-negotiable lest we become exhausted and overwhelmed. Amen? So in developing a servant's heart, we must realize that we report to God. We must get alone with God and we must begin to see things God's way. Now getting alone with God is going to help this tremendously because when we spend time with God, we hear from Him, we read His Word and He cultivates His heart in us. Seeing things God's way is reflected in our text in verses 33 through 36. It says, And the people saw them going to the other side, and many recognized them, and they ran together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. Look at this disappointment. They got in the boat with Jesus to go to the other side and get a little alone time to relax and to be refreshed. Now when they got in the boat, they had a four-mile boat ride. It says that the multitude saw them going and ran ahead of them and they beat them. That was an eight-mile run as opposed to a four-mile boat ride. These people were desperate. They were absolutely desperate. They ran around the upper circumference of the Sea of Galilee along the north side over to Bethsaida and when they brought the boat in, they were already there. It says in verse 34, now look how the people react. Look how Jesus reacts and look how the disciples react. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great multitude and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus didn't say, you've ruined my plan. I'm too busy. I came with these guys. I got to do this, that, and the other. He felt compassion for them. There is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. No other God has humbled himself to become a man. How do you know God is a false God? Because he says, do this, that, and the other, so on and so forth. And God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The real God, let me come to you. Let me come to you. Let me transform you from the inside out. Let me empower you with my Holy Spirit to be obedient to you. Be obedient to me. Christianity is cheating. All the false religions in the world say, hey man, you got to do this or you're out. And Jesus Christ says, well, you're out no matter what. So I'm going to come. I'm going to pay your price. I'm going to put the power in you and I'm going to lead you by my righteous right hand. It's cheating. It's wonderful. It's not a crutch. It's much, much more than a crutch. Verse 35, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 35, and when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away. 
so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Here we see the difference between the heart of God and the heart of man. There were this day 5,000 men. The Bible just numbers the men. I'm sorry, women, I didn't write it. That's your problem with God. The Bible just numbers the men here, but it does mean that women and children were present. If there were 5,000 men, uh, there might have been 5,000 women. If there were 5,000 men and 5,000 women, you can be sure that there were some children. John MacArthur says that he believes there were 25,000 people there. The Jews are very big on family. Every man had a woman, praise the Lord. And every man and woman had a couple children. 25,000 people possibly there that day. And the heart of God was, let's have compassion upon them. The heart of man was, send them away, let them do it themselves. Do you see that difference? The heart of God is one of compassion. That's God's perspective. Man's perspective is, send them away, let them fend for themselves. Now, the Bible declares in Jeremiah 17 regarding our hearts that they are desperately wicked and full of deceit. Who amongst us is not selfish? Who amongst us would have been set apart from the disciples this day and saying, let them deal with their own problem? We're all like that to a certain degree, which is why we need to begin to get the mind of Christ by reading the word of Christ, by his spirit in us. We need to get God's perspective on people. We need to come into a situation and say, what would Jesus do? We need to come into a situation and say, God, give me your heart for these people. Give me your heart for these people. God, let me see these people like you see them. See, Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. The disciples saw them as a problem. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. The disciples saw them as a problem. How do you view our community? How do you view our coastline? We need to get God's eyesight on it, God's perspective, God's heart, that God sees people as sheep without a shepherd who need love. And when we have God's perspective, God begins to use us to change the world around us. So now that we have those three things, look what Jesus begins to do here in verse 37. But Jesus answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. You see, they said, let them fend for themselves, but he said, you do it. You give them something to eat. You provide for the people around you. Point number four, God will expose you to the needs. God will expose you to the needs. God always places us in ministry opportunities. It's just that not all of us are mindful of it. If you've been born again, God considers you his servant. Amen? And as such, he's going to orchestrate the circumstance that you have an opportunity to use your gifts to represent God, to bless others. God will always see to that. But the realization that we need to have is that Jesus Christ is in all our circumstances. We've got to remove this separation between the secular and the holy, so to speak. We need to just see our lives as wholly consumed by God. And so whatever situation I'm in, Lord, what is your will here? What is your purpose here? What do you want to accomplish, Lord? I don't ask that question enough. I just go along my day and think, oh, that was weird. Oh, what a coincidence. Oh, I can't believe it. If you are a servant of God, there is no coincidences for you. God is sovereign over your life. Nothing is coming to your life except that it is passed through the lens of God's sovereignty. 
And so we need to become mindful that he's orchestrating our circumstances and that he wants us to bless others that he might develop us. You see, God could bless them without you and probably better, right? God could bless them without you and probably better, but he wants to employ us for the growth of us. And so if we see a need in the church or in the community, you see a need in your workplace or in your neighborhood, I believe that if we see a need, God has a man or a woman to meet that need. I don't believe that God allows there to be a need that can go unmet if God's people would but respond to his leading. If there's a need, it's because God has a man or a woman to meet that need. Now here's how we begin to discern who might do it. If you see the need, you might be the person to meet it. You see, you've got to believe in the sovereignty of God and His ability to speak to you. If He showed you the need, you might be the person to meet the need. We're so often to run to someone else. We're so quick to do that. Look at that need. Somebody's got to take care of that. Let's call reality. Let's call Pastor Britt. Hey, Britt, you've got to do this, that, and the other. And then I'll go, hey, Pastor G, you've got to do this, that, and the other. And then he'll pass it on to someone else. That's not necessarily God's design. If God is revealing it to you, it is possible that it is for you. Not always, but how do we know? How do we know? Because see, we don't want to just be a need-driven church. We don't want to just go and think we've got to meet every single need. But it might be that that need is your calling. We want to be calling-driven people. How do you discern a call from a need? Very important. Now listen to me. How do you discern a call from a need? The need is going to be easy. The call is going to be beyond you. The need is going to be easy. The call is going to be beyond you. And the need, it's fine to meet the need. We can all meet the need. Hey, this has got to be fixed. Someone says, I know how to do that. I can fix that. We've got to provide for this. I can provide for that. Hey, can you just love this person? I, I can do that. That's no big deal. That's easy. But the call of God is that which is beyond you. And so when God shows you a need and you say, well, I, I can't do that. That's when you're probably the person to do that. <laughs> Several years ago, I was sitting on the beach in Huntington Beach. And I was the... Uh, I worked for uh, the family business channel on surfboards and I was kind of the coach for the amateur team and I'd take all these kids to surf contests and Kate and I were down there at Huntington Beach at a surf contest and I was reading the Bible on the beach, Kate and I. And this kid comes up and he says, what are you reading? I said, the Bible. And he said, what's in the Bible? I said, what do you mean what's in the Bible? Didn't we all grow up in America in Christian homes? No, the kid wanted to know what was in the Bible. And so I said, oh man, this is scary. I've never told anybody what was in the Bible before. And so Kate and I just began to share with him and he got excited and he wanted to know more. And pretty soon he brought his friends around and they wanted to know. We drove home from Huntington talking about Genesis to Revelation. And I was going to Fritz and Penny Velasquez's home Bible study at that time. I went there every week for about seven years. And I shared with them that. And I begin to say, gosh, these kids that I surf with every day down at Tar Pits, they don't know who the Lord is. I mean, this kid, he's like 13 years old, and he didn't have any idea who Jesus was. There's such a great need for someone to tell them. And I believe that Fritz Velasquez said to me, well, why don't you start a little Bible study for him? My first response was, I could never do that. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine teaching the Bible. 
I never wanted to. It, didn't, it would be like going into the uh, jungles of Africa with the latest laptop and telling some naked guy to work it. <laughs> Absolutely foreign. He would have no concept. I had no concept of what it would mean to teach people the Bible. Never wanted to do it. It was absolutely foreign to me. And Fritz and Penny just began to go, yeah, someone's got to do it. (laughs) Gee, these kids that you surf with every day, they don't know the Lord, you do. Golly gee, someone's got to do it. Who's going to do it? You see, because it was beyond me, I began to recognize that it was a call of the Lord. It was a call of the Lord. God's call is always going to be far beyond us. I want you to see what Jesus does here. We're going to turn to the parallel account in John chapter 6, and we'll finish it out in John chapter 6. So just turn there. This is a parallel account of the same thing in John, but John includes some details that are important for us. Look at the, uh, the rest of the story now in John 6, verse 5. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him. Okay, great multitude, five to 25,000 people, whatever. A great multitude is coming to Jesus. Jesus sees that they're coming to him, and look what he does. And he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? They're coming to Jesus, but Jesus turns to Philip. Verse 6, very important. Read verse 6. And this Jesus was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Oh, the Lord is funny. Here comes possibly 25,000 people, and they're coming to the Lord. Can you imagine the scene? And they're all hungry. The Lord knows what he intends to do. He knows that he can make plenty of food out of a few loaves and a few fish. No big deal. But he turns to Philip. Hey, Phil. Hey, Phil. What, what, what do you think we ought to do, Phil? I need some advice right now, Phil. What is your thought on the situation? He knew exactly what he intended to do, the text says, but he asked Phil why. He wants to involve his people in his work. And when God wants to get you involved, he'll start asking you questions. I don't know. What do you think you should do about that situation in your workplace? I don't know. What do you think you should do about those people who are in need? I don't know. What should you do about that person who's backslidden? What should you do about that need that's unmet? I don't know what should you do. The Lord knows exactly what he intends to do, but he said this to test him. The Lord does not tempt us, James 1 tells us, but the Lord does test us. Now, Satan tempts us that we might fail. The Lord tests us that we might be proven trustworthy. The Lord never sets us up for failure. If the Lord has called you into something, it is for success in the kingdom of God, not for failure. Oh, there's going to be hard times. That's for your refining. But if he calls you into a ministry situation, it is that you might be proven faithful and him be proven powerful through you. So he exposes Philip to the need. Jesus didn't need help. He didn't need advice. 
He wanted to involve Philip, and it was for Philip's own growth. And this is how a servant's heart is developed in us, by God exposing us to the needs. You need to begin to think now what needs you've seen around you. What has God shown to you in your personal life, in your daily life? Forget about the four walls of the church. Get outside. What is God showing you in your family, in those around you? He did this to test him, not for failure. Um, I read a story, uh, an illustration by J. Vernon McGee, and he told a story about this railroad company that came into a town and they built this, built this giant trestle over this huge ravine, this huge canyon. And it was just this big, you know, train track thing. And at the end, when they were done building it, they pulled two giant locomotives onto the middle of the trestle, the full weight of them there on that brand new bridge. And everyone came out from the community and, and the, the engines were blowing their horns. And this kid came up to a guy who looked like he was in charge. And he said, what are you doing? And the guy said, we're testing the bridge. And the kid said, why are you testing it? Do you think it's going to break? And he said, of course it's not going to break. We know it won't break. God does not intend to break you. He intends to bless you. Oh, break you in the right sense of your pride and your arrogance and your self-reliance. But in the right sense, prove that he is able to work through you, that he has raised you up to meet the needs. Obviously, this situation was beyond the means of Philip. Amen? It was clearly beyond the means of Philip. 25,000 people. Oh, Philip, you got any pocket change? God didn't need advice. He needed a servant. After he exposes us to the needs, he reveals our inadequacy. He gives us opportunities that are beyond us. That's how we know it is from the Lord, as I said previously. If it's just a need that you can meet in the moment, praise the Lord, that's great. Meet the need, but don't let it distract from the calling. And as I said before, the calling is always beyond you. You see, as Christians, we're often saying, man, we want to let God out the box. Isn't that what we say? We complain and we gripe and we groan and God, do more. God, get out the box. And I believe that sometimes God says in response to us, you get out of the box. You do more. What haven't I done? What can't I do? I am not the problem here, people, God sometimes says to me. You are, Brit. You get out of your box. You do more. By His grace, by His strength. But wasn't Paul able to, able to say, I labored far more than anybody else who was an apostle. And yet not I, but the grace of God in me. I was in Germany a couple years ago. And I was invited there by uh, Pastor Jack Hibbs. And he's a pastor of Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills which is an amazing church. God has been blessing. It's a big church of over 6,000 adults. And they invited me to go with him to Germany. And uh, he just took me because he's kind of a mentor of mine. And he just wanted to kind of show me the ropes and pour into me. And so I'm there just serving, you know what I mean? I'm carrying luggage. I'm doing whatever I can. And uh, we were doing street evangelism for like seven days. It was wonderful. We planted a church. We did street evangelism for seven days, led Dozens and dozens of people to the Lord. Everyone that we read to the Lord, we told them, okay, now at this place on Sunday, we're going to have a brand new church. And all those people came in a church birth. And now that church is blossoming there in Stuttgart, Germany. But one of the things that we did, it was around Christmas time, we went to this giant gathering that they have in Stuttgart each year for Christmas. And Christmas is huge in Germany. These people are nuts about Christmas. It's wonderful. It was a great celebration. And so we went up and there's thousands, literally thousands of people in this gathering in this big town square. 
And we set up a rock and roll band that we brought, you know, a Christian band. We set them up on the steps of like this government building. And they begin to play and just rock out and it's really cool. And all these people gathered around. And when all these thousands of people gathered around, right when it got to fever pitch, Pastor Jack Hibbs walks up on the stage and he grabs a microphone from the band and he begins to preach the gospel. And he just preaches the most powerful message. He was just drawing insights from the current context and the things that people could see. And it was just absolutely amazing. And I was standing on the side of the makeshift stage just going, this is unbelievable. What a gnarly guy. I can't believe he's doing that. And he preached the gospel. And then he says, okay, I'm done. And he hangs up the microphone and he walks off the stage and he walks up to me and he says, three songs and you're up. What? Up where? Like, going to get up and go get us some food? What do you mean up? No, but three songs and you're up to preach the gospel next. Oh, listen. I was in way over my head. Because it was so far over my head, I didn't have to ask, Lord, is this you? Oh, I don't know. Maybe Satan wants me to preach the gospel. Maybe it's my flesh. No, man, it was the Lord. And so what did I do? With all, everything, every fiber in me crying, I want my mommy. I wanted my mommy so bad at that moment. I walked up on the stage in front of thousands of Germans. I don't speak any German. Ich sprechen kein Deutsch. I speak no German. I walk up on the stage and I preach the gospel to thousands of Germans. And yet not I, but the grace of God in me. All I did was say, okay, Lord, I'll do it. With fear, with trembling, with resistance, but Lord, I'll do it. God wants to reveal our inadequacy that we might have to rely upon His adequacy. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul writing, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. In 2 Corinthians again, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, And the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul discovered the secret that to minister we got to be in over our heads. It's got to be God doing it through us. Otherwise, we can't really call it ministry. We can call it church. But we can't call it ministry until it's empowered by the power of God and we get in a little over our head. And so it's good to realize that we are inadequate. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's good to feel unworthy. Every single time I stand in this place to minister the word of God, I feel unworthy, I feel unable, I feel inadequate, and I want my mommy. But Sunday after Sunday, Friday after Friday, Tuesday after Tuesday, I get up and I do it again. And yet not me, but the grace of God in me. All we need to do is respond in obedience. I heard a quote this morning. A weakness known to be a weakness is a strength. But a strength known to be a strength is a weakness. In other words, a strength unguarded is a liability. Where are you weak 
That can be God's strength. That can be God's strength. See, God wants to cultivate in us and developing a, a servant's heart in us a reliance and a desperation on God. And in doing so, He will orchestrate circumstances. If you are not in over your head in the kingdom of God, it might be time to open up your eyes and say, God, am I missing something? If you're not desperate and needing to rely upon him for the situations that he puts you in, you might have to say, God, am I missing something? Now look in verse 7. Philip had a horrible answer. Philip answered him and said, "Um, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Bad answer, Philip. I'm so sad for Philip right there. Philip's answer was simply, oh, Lord, we don't have enough money. That's never the right answer with God. That's never the right answer with God. God said to him, what do you think we should do? I don't think we could do anything. We don't have enough money. Wrong answer. God is not limited by such things. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? But I want you to see now Andrew. Contrast Philip with Andrew. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, Lord, there is this kid here, and he's got five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? I think Andrew, who was a man of faith, if you study his life, knew exactly what he was saying. Otherwise, why would he bring such a little thing to the Lord? That would be stupid. There's several thousand people here. Um, Lord, here's my answer. We got five loaves and two fish. That's enough, right? I think Andrew knew exactly what he was saying. I think this is what he was saying. Lord, we haven't got much, but here's what we have. And we're going to go ahead and place what we do have in your hands because we believe that you are able to do a whole lot with just a little. Lord, we haven't got much. I don't have much talent. I don't have many resources, not many gifts. But what I have, I'm going to place it in your hands, trusting that you're able to do more than I could ever do with it. I think Andrew came up with a kid and said, here's a kid, here's a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. Now you do it, Jesus. You see, ministry is like a big ping pong game. God in heaven serves the ball to you. And it's your job to hit it back to him. Oh, no, Lord, not my ball, you. And when you hit it back, he says, oh, uh-uh, uh-uh, it's coming back to you. Bam, and he hits it back to you. Oh, Lord, that's too much for me. Bam, and you hit it back to him. Oh, no, you got to do it. Bam, no, Lord, you got to do it. Bam, oh, no, Bray, you're going to do it. Bam, okay, Lord, how about if we do it together? Ah, and he catches the ball. That's what I was waiting for. How about we do it together? Okay, we'll do it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says that we are co-laborers with Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 9. We are co-laborers with Christ. Andrew brought just a little thing before the Lord, and with it, God did much. Look at the mathematics of a miracle. The mathematics of a miracle up on the PowerPoint. Five loaves plus two fishes equals not enough for several thousand people. Five loaves plus two fishes plus you, not enough for several thousand people. Five loaves, two fishes, you and Jesus Christ is more than enough. What do you have, though it be not much? Bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, let's partner in these things. Lord, let's partner in these things and it's more than enough. Ephesians 3.20 God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. 
We forget that last part. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is within us. God is not going to do it apart from you. God is going to do it with you. He's not going to do it apart from you. He's going to do it with you. That is such a big reason why we pray. You have not because you ask not. That scares the daylights out of me. You have not because you ask not. What are we failing to ask God to do in our community, in our lives, in our wives, in our husband, in our children, in our families, in our workplaces? We have not because we ask not. He won't do it apart from you. He'll do it with you. So he exposes the need to us. He reveals our inadequacy. And then he is able to work with us to perform a miracle. Last point, point number six, God will enable your hands. I want you to see it. Verse 11, Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, back in the parallel account, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just tell you, in Mark six forty-one, it says expressly that Jesus took the bread and the fish and he blessed it. And he broke the bread and then he gave it to the disciples and the disciples were supposed to give it to the people. He gave it to the disciples and the disciples were supposed to give it to people. The miracle came at the hands of God, but it came through the hands of his servants. It came from God's power, but it was delivered by God's people. We are the delivery vehicle of God's working and grace and power in our community. If we don't put our hands to the plow, nobody's going to. It is a wonderful, wonderful joy to work for the kingdom of God. Amen? It was God's power. It's for God's glory. It was his doing. But he gave it to the disciples and it went to the people. He refused to give it to the people himself. He gave it to the disciples and they had to give it to the people. But look how it started with just a very little thing in verse 10. We skipped it, but it's important. Verse 10, Jesus said to the disciples, have the people sit down. Now think about this for a minute. He told the disciples, have the people sit down. Think about that for a minute. There's possibly 25,000 hungry people. You know what it's like to have a few hungry people in your face. You moms know when your kids come home with their friends, we're hungry. It's intimidating. Here's 25,000 people. We're hungry. It's getting late. We're ready to eat. And they're all looking to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell them to sit down. You guys have got to do it. Disciples, you have the people sit down. That took boldness and faith, though it was a little thing. It was just a little thing. It seemed insignificant. It seemed as though the disciples, listen. It seemed as though the disciples could have said, no, Lord, that's silly. I'm not going to do that. And just looked for the miracle but they would have never participated in the miracle if they hadn't been obedient in the tiny, seemingly insignificant thing. So many of us miss out on the little thing, which is always a door to the bigger thing. Jesus said it very clearly. He who is faithful with little shall be entrusted with more. This he did to test them. Have the people sit down. See what my disciples are made of. They would have to stand there, raise their voices for 20,000 people and say, okay, everybody, listen. Listen to me. Who are you? I'm nobody, man. But listen to me. We want to hear from Jesus. No, listen, please listen. Everybody sit down. What are you talking about? Just everybody sit down. Why should we sit down? Jesus, why should they sit down? 
I don't know, man. God didn't tell me what's next. Oh, God didn't tell me what's next. I'm just being obedient to what he's told me to do. It doesn't make sense. It seems a little weird. It seems insignificant. It seems unnecessary. But he hasn't told me what's next. Just please sit down. And their faith and their boldness and their obedience in that little thing caused them to be the delivery vehicle for the larger thing, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Here's how we end the conclusion. The servants of God are blessed more abundantly than the multitude of men. Verse 12. And when they were filled, Jesus said to the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Do you notice that there were twelve disciples and twelve baskets? Each disciple had a basket that was full of leftovers. You see, the people that ran around the lake to meet Jesus with their needs, they got fed, they were full, but when they went away, they would hunger soon. The people who were in the boat with Jesus, who had endeavored to go away and be alone with Him, who had been prepared for service by being with Him, they not only ate and were filled, but they now went away with a basket full, with exceeding abundantly, with leftovers, with more than the multitude. You see, there's people that come to church and just say, give me something good. And you'll get something. God will meet you, God will fill you, and you'll go away and you'll hunger again. But there's those who come and say, let me give something to someone today. Let me give something to the Lord. Let me give something to the people around me. And they go out with the same attitude. Let me serve someone in the community today. Let me be a blessing. Those are the 12 basket Christians. Those are the Christians who have more, who have an abundance. The servants of God are always more blessed than the multitude of men. And so the only question is, which one do you want to be? One of the multitude that ran the miles for a meal? One of the disciples that traveled in the boat with the Lord and went away with exceeding abundantly. More than they asked. Certainly more than they thought. Lord, we ask that you would press upon our hearts the tremendous reality of the needs that face our church, that face our community, our coastline, and us as individuals. And then you would stir faith in us right now, Lord, as every heart is attentive. Stir faith in us with regards to your ability to meet the needs through us. Thank you for our inadequacy. Thank you for our inability. Thank you that we cannot, but you can. Thank you that we are not God, but you are. And so fill us with faith in the fact that you love us, desire to use us, and want to do more than we ever thought possible. Fill us with that faith, Lord that you want to use us in our life situation right now. Develop in us a servant's heart that we might experience the abundance of God and distribute the blessings of God to those in need. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.